Last week, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first sermon in Christian history according to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Sermon on the Mount took place near the Sea of Galilee on a hillside. It could have been this hillside. And it's here that Jesus, after saying a few things like, the poor in spirit are blessed, and those that are meek shall have a voice, and those who are, grieve, are grieving will be comforted, that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Now, as we talked about last week, I used to think that my beliefs made me the, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But when you look closely at what Jesus is teaching in this sermon, it's about how to live and not what to believe. And so last week, we talked about how life is greater than belief. And we are continuing in this sermon, and we are following right after where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we assume that Jesus will teach us some more about life. And boy, does Jesus teach us from this point forward. He says in the very next part of the sermon, you've heard that our ancestors were told no killing. Now, it's important to recognize that Jesus is a Jew. He is poor and he is oppressed by the Roman Empire, and he is speaking to other Jews who are poor and oppressed by the Roman Empire. And when he says, hey, remember our ancestors, how they told us that we should make sure that we avoid killing? He is referencing a story that is 1,500 years old at this point. He is bringing his listeners all the way back to Egypt, back when their ancestors were enslaved for 400 years under different pharaohs, until one day God intervened and with a mighty and miraculous hand led the Israelites across the Sea of Reeds, parted the waters and across the Sea of Reeds into the dry land, and it was there that the Israelites were breathing free air for the first time in 10 generations. Upon reaching the other side of the sea, God then led them to the base of Mount Sinai. And it was here that their leader, Moses, went up to the top and would talk regularly with God. And it was here that God reached down and with God's own finger began to write in a stone tablets. And God gave two tablets to Moses that were inscribed 10 rules, which would be the foundation of the new nation going forward, this brand new people group that would be uh, starting a nation together. The sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments is quite simple. No murdering. Absolutely not. There's no gray area in this passage. And so when Jesus calls them back to the base of Mount Sinai, he is saying, remember how we were told no killing. He's trying to get people to connect with their history. He then goes on to say, you've also heard them say, every murder will be subject to judgment. Now, we don't know what verse Jesus was referencing here, but it's a conglomeration of four different ones, four different verses in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he kind of paraphrases there, and that's totally fine. So he says, let's remember our heritage and what we were told about violence. We should absolutely avoid murder. We should not, be kill, we should not kill others. And we should remember that every murderer will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, he says, that everyone who is angry with sister or brother is subject to judgment. Now, if you're reading closely, you may have a reaction similar to mine. I said, what? Are you serious? Here, the way that Jesus remembers the passage is that, hey, if you murder, you will be subject to judgment. But he says, actually, if you're just angry with your sister or brother, you'll receive the same punishment in God's eyes. 
In other words, Jesus says anger is just as bad as murder. Now, at this point, if you're like me, you're freaking out a little bit. You're saying, that seems like a pretty serious thing, and I was pretty sure I was angry 10 seconds ago, but now I'm not angry. Please don't hurt me, God. So here we read how Jesus keeps going. He says, anyone who says to sister or brother, I spit in your face, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 72 religious judges who anytime you broke a religious law, you would go and stand trial before them and they would determine your punishment in order to restore yourself to Israel. So the Sanhedrin was there and they would judge whether or not you broke them, so, broke laws. And so if you said, I spit in your face to a brother or a sister, Jesus says you should go before the court of religious justice. He then goes on to say, and anyone who vilifies a sister or brother with name-calling will be subject to the fires of hell. Now, hell is in most translations, but we are using the, the inclusive translation, which actually puts the proper name in its place. It's not actually hell that Jesus says here. Jesus uses the word or the place Gehenna, which was a very real place during Jesus' time and day. You can actually go visit Gehenna today. You can't go visit hell today, as far as I know. <laughs> and it looks like this. There's people living in the fires of, Ge whatever, Gehenna or hell, one of the two, right? Now, you may say, why is Gehenna so bad that we would later translate it as hell, and then we've got to remind ourselves that we've got to translate it back to Gehenna? Well, the reason why is because kings used to sacrifice their children in this valley. And Jeremiah, several hundred years before Jesus walked the earth, saw this behavior, and he condemned it. And he said, this is abhorrent to God. And most of you would probably agree with Jeremiah's assessment of the whole situation. So that, from that day forward, Jeremiah cursed that ground. And when Jesus says they will be banished to Gehenna, he's saying they will be banished to cursed ground. So we read these words, and we say to ourselves, wow, Jesus really wants us to know that if we are even angry just this much, it is just as bad as murder in God's eyes. And so we have to think to ourselves, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't be angry even for like a second. Because if I do, that's a pretty serious offense against God. And yet, when you read the story, you start to read about Jesus going through his life in Matthew, you all of a sudden come across something 16 chapters after this sermon. There's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He gets off the donkey. He makes a beeline for the temple, and he becomes very angry. He picks up a whip. He starts whipping it around. He starts flipping over tables, and he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. I cannot imagine him saying any of these things without him being angry. Two chapters later, He's talking to the religious officials that he does not like very much. And he says to them, woe to you, religious scholars and Pharisees, you frauds. You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful to look at on the outside, but on the inside full of filth and the bones of the dead. Now, this is wild because it wasn't too many chapters ago that Jesus said, anyone who calls someone else a name will be subject to the Sanhedrin. And then he goes to the Sanhedrin and calls them names. Hilarious, right? Because a whitewashed tomb is a name. And so when we look at this, it's really interesting to look at this whole story from this perspective. We have this idea that Jesus wants us to get rid of all of our anger, that we should never feel anger at all, and to feel anger is actually a sin. But we have to remember that we're reading translations of translations, 
And when we get caught up in the literalism of the word, we actually miss the inspiration behind the word. And that can be a very dangerous place to be. Because if we take this literally, then Jesus feels he basically committed murder, right? If Jesus says quite literally, hey, being angry is just as bad as, being, as murdering someone, well, here he is very angry. And in Jesus' eyes, from the literal sense, this is just as bad as murder. You know what? When I read this now, I hear this story, and I'm just relieved this story is in here. Because I believe that Jesus tried to live his life with less anger, right? And yet, even though he tried to live his life as the son of God with less anger, there were some things that still made him pretty angry, like people exploiting religion for profit, right? So this story reminds us that every human being is in a relationship with anger. If anybody here says, you know what? I accepted Jesus in my life, and I haven't been angry one day since. I said, did you accept him yesterday? Because it's impossible not to be angry at some point. And Jesus gives us permission to be angry when we see injustices or when other things trip us up, even though he encourages us back here to live a life with less anger. I love the progression in this story because, remember, this story started, this sermon started by him saying, let's go back 1,500 years ago. Remember when God handed us some laws? God said, don't murder anybody. That was good. But I think there's more to life than that. Jesus would probably say today, hey, if I asked you, how's your spiritual life going? You said, great, I didn't murder anyone today. <laughs> I think you'd miss the point, right? Because when you think about it, you are created in the image of God, and you were created to be something more than one who simply avoids murder. You can say to yourself, you know what, I keep the commandments. I didn't murder anybody today. I didn't commit adultery. Thank goodness, I am following God fully. And Jesus would say, there's so much more to life and following God than simply avoiding murder. The next passage right after this one, Jesus starts talking about lust. And he says, anyone who feels any kind of sexual desire for another person has already committed adultery in their hearts. Now, this verse weighed heavily on my heart, particularly my teenage years, and it was a very difficult thing to process. I thought I was constantly sinning by having just sexual desires, right? And yet, when you look closely at what it is, it's this movement from saying like, okay, here's this black and white law, but there's something more than that, right? If you ask somebody, how's your marriage going? You say, great, I didn't commit adultery today. You would know that something's probably wrong, right? <laughs> And in the same way, I believe that when Jesus teaches on that, he's basically telling the people that are listening to him, your marriage is meant to be something more than simply avoiding adultery. It's so much more than that. That is not the marker of a successful marriage. There is so much more beyond just what the commandment says. So here we have Jesus telling people about how there was an original rule but as they have continued to grow and develop, there is more beyond the rule. And as you start to look at closely at what he's saying, he's trying to tell them, you can live with less anger in your life. You don't have to be so angry. Not only that, but when God created you, you were not created to be an angry person. You were not created to be somebody who's just ticked off all the time. You're not created to be somebody who's like, oh, this world is not my home. How much longer? Oh, my goodness. This is just terrible here, right? 
And I have to tell you, there's days that I've really been an angry person, and I kind of saw it mirrored in a younger person just recently. We uh, went bowling for Paradox Kids, uh, and it was a great event. And there was this robot that was paroling or going up and down the, the hallways, and this robot had like shelves in the bag that, back that you could put your shoes on, or you could put trash on it, and it would take it to the trash and dump the trash in uh, the trash can, which was just kind of remarkable, right? And I watched these kids. These, there was several kids there. This was not one of our kids, I promise. Uh, a kid ran up to this robot, and you see this digital eye here that's very cute? Looked it right in the digital eye and just said, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I don't know what this robot did that made this kid do that. And while it's easy to sit in judgment of the kid, I looked at that kid and thought, ah, I too have lived with that hatred boiling just beneath the surface. I don't know what's going on in your life, man, but I hope that you find some resolution in that. Because when it comes to this idea of living with hatred or anger just below the surface, Jesus says, I know you have days like that, but you were not created to be an angry person. That's not who God made you to be. There is something more to life than just getting angry at the latest thing that trips you up. Now, this is particularly relevant in our day and age because we live in the era of social media. And social media places a premium on negative words over positive words. You can build a social media career on tearing everything apart. As opposed to these positive words don't get as much attention because these social media companies have found that the more we're angry, the more we stay on their platforms. And so negative words have skyrocketed in value while positive words have plummeted. Not only that, but you can make a career out of pointing out all the things that are wrong with everything, quite literally. There was a show on TV not too long ago called Adam Ruins Everything. Has anyone else seen the show? Yeah, a few people, all right. I watched this show because I wanted to be smart. I wanted to be educated. I wanted to know what was wrong so that way I could point it out and point to the injustices in the world. But then Adam got real personal and he started pointing out things that were wrong with the things that I really liked in this, in this world, right? He started talking about summer vacation and how it was bad. He talked about sex being bad, voting being bad, nutrition, nature, weddings, Christmas, for the love of God, <laughs> going green, college, flying, nachos, and spa day. Nachos are not good for you. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Um, and spa day is bad for you. And then there's even an episode where Adam ruins everything, including Adam. And I looked at the show, and I watched a few episodes, and I thought I was getting really smart. And I mean, look at this guy. He is supposed to portray intelligence. I mean, the glasses, the tie, everything. And the idea is that if you know what's wrong with the things that are good, then you will be someone who is intelligent. But as I watched the show, I started to realize it's kind of all the same. And the title is very true in the way that it presents itself. It tells us that everything that is good can be ruined. Everything. You can find something wrong with everything you love if you try hard enough. Now, what's interesting is there's this sense that if somebody points out all the wrong things about something that's good, then they are an intelligent person, that they are a person who is walking around with their eyes wide open. We have a word for that. It's called cynicism. And we've recently confused cynicism 
with intelligence. My friends, cynicism is not intelligence. Cynicism is laziness. It is easy to consume, 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 and say everything sucks. No effort is put into that. Nothing matters when you treat things that way. And when I think about all of this and what it means for us today, I'm I'm reminded of a quote, one of the great quotes in American history. Some people have attributed it as a Jewish proverb. It was said by a speaker of the house that lived a long time ago. His name is Sam Rayburn. He said on his way out and handing the gavel to the opposite party of speaker of the house, he said, people asked him how he felt, and he said this. He said, you know, a donkey can tear down a barn, but it takes a carpenter to build it back. In other words, those guys over there are a bunch of, well, you can figure that piece out. <laughs> but a donkey can tear down a barn, right? You give a donkey the r- enough time, they can tear the barn down. You will never see a donkey building a barn back. And when I look at Jesus talking about anger, and the way that he talks about it is so profound, so moving to me, it's almost like he's telling people, hey, you guys, you're not donkeys, you're carpenters. You're not here to just be angry all the time and tear stuff apart. You're here to build something. And yes, some of that building comes out of angry energy because you realize that something's wrong. But man, make sure that you're building something and not just complaining about things all the time. Make sure that you're standing up and doing something with your life. Because life is too short to just whine the whole way through. And when you look at that, Jesus then takes this sermon to another level, in my opinion, when he says something that most churches skip over, in my opinion. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your sister or brother has a grudge against you. Now, today, none of us really worship at an altar, so we think of it as a metaphorical altar. But this was a literal altar in Jesus' day and age, and it was the altar in Jerusalem. Now, there was a sacrificial system set up. And if you sinned against God, Jesus' religion said, this is the code book you can follow to figure out what sacrifice you need to offer so that that way you can offer a sacrifice at the altar. Once it's offered, you walk away and you know God is at peace with you. So this was all part of the religious system. So Jesus says, if you go and do that, if you're seeking forgiveness for God and you go to the altar and they remember that your sister or brother has a grudge against you, leave, he says, Leave your gift there at the altar. Turn around. Go back. Go to be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. My friends, this take is fire. (laughs) Because what Jesus is saying here is that forgiveness, making amends, and reconciliation are all more important than religion. Fire. Now, as I said, I don't think churches teach this that often, because if we take Jesus' words seriously here, Jesus would say to us, hey, I know you like going to church. If you have a grudge against someone, you should stop going. You should stop going until you do your best to make amends with them. Now, there are some people that you have spent a lot of time trying to make amends with somebody, and you just keep running into walls. I think Jesus would be very sympathetic to that. But if you knew that there was something you could do to lower the anger in the world, I think that Jesus would say, you know, church is great, but making amends, that's a miracle. I think about all of this in regards to the context of Desmond Tutu. In case you're wondering who he is, he literally wrote the book on forgiveness. 
And he starts in that book with an intro. And this intro, he says, I want to tell you two simple points in this whole book. Now, I could tell you those two simple points very quickly, and you'd be like, oh, that's cute. But you have to understand who Desmond Tutu is in order to appreciate what he's actually telling us. So let's go back and go through a quick journey through Desmond Tutu's life. He was born in 1931 in a place called Klerksdorp. Now, while there was no official rules on the books, South Africa in 1931 was deeply segregated. This was primarily segregated through railway lines that ran from Cape Town to central South Africa, and it was very intentionally segregated by a very, very small white minority that ended up rising to power through colonial evilness. 17 years after Desmond Tutu was born, there was a law passed, a series of laws passed called Apartheid, which means apartness in Dutch. This made segregation legal. It made it so you could designate areas as white areas and areas as black areas. And of course, black people always got the short end of the stick in regards to this because the white minority was running things. Now, apartheid relegated black South Africans to certain areas that they could only live, and these were known as Bantustans. And it was here in these Bantu stands that they were also handed paperwork and forced to require a passport in their own country, and any white official could ask them to see their papers at any time. Now, over decades, there was a series, a number of violent acts, always leaning toward one side, and it was just horrifically uh, snowballing and getting worse and worse with each passing decade. And there was Desmond Tutu seeing all of it, and there got to be a point where he said, you know what, I'm angry. I want apartheid to change. And he said, I'm a teacher right now. I really want to be part of the change. I want to be part of the solution. And so I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to change my career to the thing that makes it most possible for me to change apartheid in South Africa. So he went to seminary, which I don't quite follow the logic there, but good on him. <laughs> he went to seminary in Johannesburg in 1956. And he became involved in the Anglican church. He became a priest. And he began uh, teaching on Sundays about what a world without apartheid would look like. Now, he grew in prominence and prominence over the decades. His big thing was he believed in anti-violence, but he also tried to warn people, hey, I really am sympathetic to black Africans who re react in violence because look at all the discriminations happening on them. So his main platform was we need to get the other countries of the world to do an economic boycott of South Africa until they repeal apartheid. He went around the world and met with world leaders. His work was really moving the dial when it came to apartheid in South Africa, so much so that in 1984, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. A few years later, he became the Archbishop of Cape Town in 1986, and they could start to feel the cracks of apartheid when it finally fell in 1994 with the election of Nelson Mandela. The first time a vote happened in South Africa where everyone could vote. Now, Desmond Tutu looked back on that day and he remembered it this way. He said, voting in that election was like falling in love. I don't hear many people talking about voting that way today. <laughs> and yet you hear the story and you say, oh, taking this for granted once again. Now, Desmond Tutu was in charge of the religious aspects of Nelson Mandela's inauguration ceremony, and he insisted that Muslim officials 
Buddhist officials and Hindu officials be involved in the ceremony because this was a ceremony for all of South Africa, not just the Christian South Africa. Now, shortly after Nelson Mandela's inauguration, he started, there was this question of like, okay, we've now elected a black president for the first time in South Africa's history, but we're still segregated, so how do we reconcile everything? And so Nelson Mandela turned to the guy who won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he says, you figure it out. And so Desmond Tutu started in 1995 the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was here that he said to all of South Africa, okay, everybody, this is how we're going to do things. We want everyone here to know that there's a three-step process if you committed any crime during apartheid. The first step is that you have to come to our Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and into a microphone you have to share a confession of what you did. And anyone who shares a confession will be granted amnesty. You will not go to jail no matter what you did. This was highly controversial. He said, we'll grant amnesty to anyone who confesses things. However, we're still going to ask you to do things to make things right. So we're going to require you to leave this place and make restitution for what you've done. And so Desmond Tutu listened to the worst things that humanity has to offer. He heard it day in, day out, day in, day out for Three years, there are videos of Desmond Tutu breaking down and crying in the meetings because the violence and the anger and the ugliness of humanity is too much to bear. And then in 1998, he handed the report to Nelson Mandela, shook his hands, he says, I am out of politics, and he got out of that world very quickly. 16 years later, after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the man writes the book on forgiveness. And in the intro, he says, I want to share with you two simple truths. This is from a man who went through the worst that apartheid has to offer, the worst that humanity has to offer. He's seen the depths of despair. And the two simple truths he wants to share with you and me as we read this book is this. There is nothing that cannot be forgiven. And there is no one undeserving of forgiveness. That's hard to read, isn't it? And yet, when I read it, it's kind of stunning that it hasn't occurred to me before. Because I grew up in the church, and you know what I heard over and over again from the church? I heard that God can forgive any sin. And I heard that God can forgive any sinner. And Desmond Tutu turns it on its head and says, oh yeah, and you can forgive any sin. And you can forgive any sinner. Now, Desmond Tutu sends the rest of the book defining forgiveness. He says what it's not. It's not an absence of justice. It's not um, a, a just being run over by things. It's not like some sign of weakness. He goes on and on to make sure that he's clarifying what forgiveness actually looks like. It does require restitution. But he says, you can forgive anyone. You can forgive every person. And his big point of the book is, if you don't forgive someone, you're only hurting yourself. Because you are living an angry life. And guess what? You were not created to be an angry person. And so when we think about what Jesus is trying to say here by saying, like, I don't, I don't think you're supposed to be as angry as you are. And look, there's religion, and religion's great, and participate in religion. But if you can fix a grudge, leave church, leave the altar, go find that person and make amends right away. Because that's more important. That's where God is more than a worship service. 
In other words, Jesus is telling the people who are listening, the road to living with less anger is paved with forgiveness. It's paved with being able to let anger go. I read a poem in that same book by Desmond Tutu, and it deeply moved me. He said, I will forgive you. The words are so small, but there is a universe hidden in them. When I forgive you all those cords of resentment, pain, and sadness that had wrapped themselves around my heart will be gone. When I forgive you, you will no longer define me. You measured me, and you assessed me, and you decided that you could hurt me. I didn't count, but I will forgive you because I do count. I do matter. I am bigger than the image you have of me. I am stronger. I am more beautiful. And I am infinitely more precious than you thought me. I will forgive you. And my forgiveness is not a gift that I am giving to you. When I forgive you, my forgiveness will be a gift that gives itself to me. My friends, may you always trust that you were created to be a loving person and not an angry one. May you become so passionate about justice that you feel angry, but may you also feel more passionate about life that you become loving. May you always remember that you are not a donkey. You are a carpenter. And may you always remember that your anger does not define you, but your forgiveness can. Amen.